welcome to TLF Gems, a podcast about customer experience and insight from TLF Research. I'm Stephen Hampshire. And I'm Greg Roche. And in this episode, the second episode featuring our interview with Chris Barnum, we'll be listening to Chris and I talk about how to apply qualitative semiotics to the world of customer experience in particular. Sounds really interesting. Looking forward to hearing it, Stephen. There's loads and loads of interesting yep. things in there that I want to pick up on. Probably probably the first one for me, I, I think, is this idea of because we want to understand how meaning is created, we have to sort of shift the the focus away from what we're sending, yep. you know, the messages we're transmitting out, what our brands are transmitting out, and inside a, a consumer's head to understand how they create an understanding of what the brand is. And I think, and really, as soon as you say that out loud, yep. it becomes obvious that that's true. It's only by the interaction of my understanding with your message yep. that, that creates a meaning. Yep. And if you read people like Wally Olins um, in his classic book on brand, he says it precisely that. And I suppose, uh, to your point, that's going sure. back to yep. the, the good old days of the 80s and, and, and branding understood in that, to, to, in that way. So I think the interesting thing for me there is this idea in communication that the container metaphor, yep. you know, or the transmission metaphor that I, I package up an idea, put yep. it into a container, send it over to you, you unpackage it, um, and you might get it wrong because you're an idiot, but basically that's a, a good way for me to yep. get information and understanding into your head. Uh, and we all kind of know that doesn't really work like that. But what you're pointing out, I guess, is that, that we have, we've always had these tools. We've always had mm-hmm. the work that that person had done to help us understand how that meaning creation worked um uh, but we've never really used them <laughs> or at least have yep. have got out of the habit of using them mainly because marketing people and this is, i guess is an assertion from me but marketing people are very in love with this idea of yep. communication as transmission that i can control yep. exactly i can craft this message to be a beautiful perfect yep. piece of communication that will do its job no and absolutely it, it and it's interesting like one, one thing you mentioned in passing there you in this transmission model the consumer can only do one thing, one of two things. They can either get it right or get it wrong. Um, the the consumer is not given the freedom to make meaning themselves. Um, and what they're not allowed to do, really interestingly, they're not allowed to make a better meaning than the brand. <laughs> they can only get what the message is or get it wrong. Mm. They can't improve on it. Um, so it's a very um, kind of top-down view of meaning making. <laughs> which obviously is very appealing to marketers mm. because it puts them in the driving seat. But it's not how it works. It's not how meaning is made and it's not how consumers understand their world. So, yeah, there's a lot to, lot to be kind of opened up there. One thing that that sort of prompts, well, I thought that, that prompts in my head is, is, again, it's a bit of a personal theory, I suppose. My instinct is that consumers instinctively reject anything you say explicitly and verbally and instinctively accept anything yep. that you say implicitly and in the story and yep. the qualifications that you mentioned around that and that's why storytelling yep. is such a powerful advertising technique because exactly. it, it sort of sneaks yep. past our defenses and i guess that ties in with the idea you can't just you can't assert no. your way to a yeah ex- you have exactly to, no totally to agree it. yeah the kind of the, the rational message particularly these days just will never ever get through in fact there are some brands i've worked for I obviously can't mention their names, but actually the, the net result of their rational messages has been the opposite of what they intended. There's, there's, there, was, there was a lovely quote I, I came across in a food product 
about 10 years ago when it said natural on the product, I think, and, and one of the women in the group turned around and said, well, it can't be natural then, can it? Because it says natural. <laughs> and that's yeah. exactly what happens. That woman may be cynical, but she is all of us. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, why are you saying that? Yeah, yeah. Uh, the example I always give is the word famous. You know, mm. when a shop describes itself as the the famous like, home of yeah, 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 yeah. If you were, you wouldn't say it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, totally agree. Yeah. And I guess the other thing I wanted to pick your brains on, really, and and uh, we should mention that that you've written a, a really good article in the summer edition of Customer Insight, which goes into a lot of the stuff that that you've introduced. Picking up on that, I guess, I wrote a, a very short uh, piece speculating about the use of qualitative semiotics for customer experience research in, in particular, because that's, um, that's obviously our area of focus. It seems to me that there's a huge amount of potential there because you know, customer experience is about, again, what happens inside a customer's head. It's about how they create meaning yep. based on their experiences, what you say, but also what you do and the environment in which it happens and dot, 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 dot. So there seem to me to be obvious parallels with branding and marketing, Yeah, but it's not quite exactly the same thing. So I, I, it'd be interesting to talk to you um, or talk through with you yep. how we might go about applying that kind of um, semiotic approach to qualitative research uh, in customer experience. Yeah, well, cus customer experience is, is actually an even better way of thinking about this, this process of building a propositional hierarchy in some senses, because there is always an order effect in customer experience so you start off somewhere um the, well, the, the, the consumer starts off somewhere and then their subsequent experiences qualify where they started um so you, you find this particularly i've done over the years i've done lots of pub research and, and retail research with with obviously in, with shops and those those initial first impressions are so important in terms of how the customer experiences the the offering um, and if you get that first bit wrong, then it all goes kind of completely pear-shaped from then on. So customer experience, um, whether it's kind of a, a retail outlet or whether it's a relationship with your bank on the internet or, or whether it's, it's somebody talking to you on the phone, all of those things create a propositional hierarchy. And what Peirce is saying is that without even knowing it, the first time you experience something, I don't know, let me say I ring up British Gas, how I experience British gas will immediately form an identity and I will classify it on that basis as, oh, it's like so-and-so. And from that point, British gas can only qualify that identity <laughs> in everything else that they say to me or do. Um, so getting those first impressions right is, is really key. But yes, you're right, Stephen, customer experience is a really good example of how propositional hierarchy is, is created because it's something that happens over a period of time it's something that happens over multiple occasions when you kind of revisit a retail outlet or, or talk to a, a, a customer, uh, talk to a, um, a company over the phone. It's something that happens on a, on a repeated basis. And all the time, you're dealing with this really interesting mix of identity and qualification, identity and qualification. Mm. Um, and if you get those two things the wrong way around, you end up in a mess. And we just don't do that. We don't. We never explore it on that basis. We always just think about it as brand associations. That's. And I think that's really, really interesting. The, the, the idea of identity and qualification, which I guess is, stop me if I get this wrong, but it, it, it's sort of starting from the assumption that we we basically think categorically. So that's yep. a car. What sort of a car is it? Yep. Or that's a bank. What sort of a bank is it? Or yep. that's a shop. What kind of yeah, a yeah. shop is it? Yeah. And. Going in as a customer, then part of what sort of a of an X is it is mm -hmm. 
are they are they going to look after me as a customer? Are they trying to trick me? And I, exactly. So those kind of expectations that, that are then going to be yep. moved in one direction or another. Exactly. One thing about customer experience that, that again, I'd like to pick your brains on is, is the kind of, is there's a bit of feedback in there. So if I phone up, let's say, a utility provider, yep. I'm probably half, because of those qualifications that I've got in my head from, from previous experiences, mm. whatever, I'm probably half expecting to have a bad interaction. Mm. So I, I get on the phone, slightly touchy, wishing mm. I didn't have to yeah, do this. Already, yeah. So then when the member of staff picks up the phone and greets me, they probably pick up on the fact that I'm being yep. a bit touchy and not very warm and, and open to them. And then, so you get this kind of feedback loop yep. of yep. negativity. Exactly. Um, and that's, yeah, well, what, what's your view on that and, and how those kind of things perpetuate? Well, this, this is the thing. What Perth would say is you either go into a feedback route, in which case your, your identity is confirmed and confirmed and confirmed, or alternatively, you start to qualify it in some way. And slowly but surely, if enough qualifications start to happen, what Peirce argues is actually start to create a new identity. Um, and you start to kind of position, let's say it's British Gas, in a different way to other utility companies. Um, and that's, that's the trick. If you can start to do that, rather than just be kind of categorised by the consumer as a utility company, if you can actually start to position British Gas as a company that's different from other utility companies. Um, over the years, I, I did many, many projects for First Direct. Um, and yes, they're a telephone bank, but they are a completely different telephone bank. <laughs> um, they're not like the NatWest or the HSBC telephone unit. Um, they really are a completely different identity. Um, and they've done that by, by consistently being different. And again, they've used propositional hierarchy to do that. They, they have got, and obviously the fact that they haven't got branches helps here, they've got consumers to think about them as a telephone bank rather than a bank that you contact on the phone. <laughs> um, mm. So they really have played that identity trick really well and have got the consumer to think about them in a particular way. Um, so yes, you can, you can always get the consumer to qualify. Um, and if you do that, you will create new meaning and you will create new propositional hierarchy. But what you then have to do is do stuff that makes them qualify. <laughs> that's interesting because it's you could you could say that that's obvious. Like if you're yeah. consistently good at customer service, you'll be known for being good at customer yeah. service. But actually, it is quite profound because what you're doing is articulating how differentiation is done. Exactly. So what you're not doing is just creating another set of brand associations. What you're doing because you could set you could create some brand associations which are different and make no difference to the propositional hierarchy this happens all the time carling is a good example because it's a lager that's got a really rigid fixed propositional hierarchy and you can do lots of really sexy stuff down the bottom but if you haven't changed the kind of four or five things at the top <laughs> of the propositional hierarchy you won't really are getting nowhere what's what's good about this model is it makes you realize what you've got to do um, rather than just saying we need to create some new brand associations here what you've really got to do is change the propositional hierarchy. And there's only one way to find out whether you've done that or not, um, which is to do some qualitative research with consumers. Because I'm, I'm, I'm not at all convinced. I've never obviously seen anybody try and quantify this way of thinking. It might be possible one day to do it. But what's really important, and again, this is where um, clients sometimes get confused. They think this is just laddering. Um, and it's not laddering. What you're trying to do is find out the difference between identity and qualification. 
you're not trying to find out what is the biggest association because <laughs> um, mm -hmm. finding out the biggest association with a brand doesn't tell you what's at the top of the propositional hierarchy it just tells you what's an easy peasy thing to associate with a brand yeah and um I, if you if you if you did a kind of a ranking of associations with heineken i'm sure being a lager would be the top but that wouldn't be a very good message to start off with <laughs> in, in any brand mm -hmm. communication so there's this constant tension in terms of quantitative ways of looking at brands where they tend to favor generic values which everyone can agree to um, i'm sure you've, you've experienced this yourself Stephen, doing, doing qualitative research generic propositions tend to win in quantitative research but, you, but but generic propositions are the very ones you don't want to take on you want you want something that's distinctive yeah. and, and makes you different not a generic one but in, you go into any quantitative proposition test and you'll find the generic one comes through <laughs> Um, and it always will do. I suppose it, it comes back to this idea that what matters is what's happening in each individual's yep. head, as opposed to, you know, some kind of average consumer's Exactly. Um, yeah, yeah, totally. I guess coming back to the actual kind of practicalities of, of doing the research, So, and you mentioned some of those yep. things at the beginning in terms of, you know, an interview method rather than a focus group, and I think that makes perfect sense to me. In terms of the actual kind of mechanisms you use in the research, mm -hmm. one thing that popped into my head while you were talking is, and I think I've mentioned to this uh, when we first mm -hmm. met actually, was uh, there's a guy called Gerald Zeltman who wrote a book called How Customers Think, yep. which you may well yep, be aware it, of. Yep. He, he talks about many of the same things in terms of kind of concept formation and, and these kind of networks of concepts, which you could probably argue are similar yeah. to identities and qualifications. Yeah. But he pushes this method he calls ZMET, which is the, the, the Zaltman metaphorical elicitation technique, right. which to boil it down to, you know, an unfair caricature is basically asking people to bring pictures along. Yeah that sort of embody metaphorically some some aspect of, of what it is they want to talk about. Yeah. So just a couple of things about in, in his book that I think are interesting. He, he absolutely despises focus groups and <laughs> says you have to use interviews yep. for much the same reasons that you are, because you know, to get at the individual, yep. you have to have an individual conversation. Yeah. But in, in terms of getting to the, the way meanings are formed he definitely prioritizes kind of a, a addressing them obliquely mm. so rather than yeah, yeah. asking the direct question like let's work at it by bringing a photo along and talking about yeah. why you've chosen that photo so would you say that that's right you need to kind of be yeah uh, a lot quite direct yeah yeah no you definitely have to be sort of fairly indirect and come at it in a, an oblique way and I, I think the whole business of finding out metaphorical ways of thinking about the brand are really useful because what, of course, you, you do find when you try and work out what a propositional hierarchy is, is that some of the elements of the hierarchy aren't that top of mind. Um, they are metaphorical. They are deeply buried somewhere in the, in the consciousness of the consumer. Um, and certainly what I do is just, I, I never go straight into trying working out of what, what a propositional hierarchy is. What you do is you talk to them for half an hour about what they associate with the brand, and then you get loads of stuff out on the table in terms of, of the sorts of values they've talked about and then you start to, to try and work out propositional hierarchies with those values now some of those values may well be metaphorical um so I, i'm sure i've not read about the kind of his his particular technique but it sounds to me pretty similar but does he out of interest does he does he try and put them in a hierarchy or not he, d he does yeah he does. so he, to be honest chris it's been a long time since i've read it but i'm i'm sure he does 
I think he may even use the sort of ladder metaphor, but not not the traditional sort of why 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 kind yeah, yeah. of laddering. But 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 I think he does use that that basic metaphor somewhere. Yeah, um, yeah. I'd have to read the book again. Yeah, yeah. No, sure. I, met, metaphorical values are really quite quite key. And the other thing we've 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 not talked about actually is even when you've got those values out of the consumer and you talk to them for half an hour about them, what you need to do is go back to that classification question again, which is what sort of. So let's say you're talking to a, a, a guy who drinks Carling Lager. He'll doubtless at one point or another say British. Well, the key thing is what sort of British are we talking about? So not only are you trying to work out where Britishness is in the hierarchy, but what sort of Britishness is he talking about when he might put it near the top of the hierarchy? And so there's, there's this two-way process all the time. You're, you're trying to work out what the hierarchy is, but you're also trying to, to define exactly what sort of value each one is. So you, you almost end up with a matrix of, of values down the, down the side in terms of what the hierarchy is, but also definitions and qualifications of those values themselves in terms of how they, how they work. So it's quite complex, but then it, if it wasn't complex, there wouldn't be market research. <laughs> so it is, I mean, it, what I like about that is that as soon as you reduce it to, to the simple sounding, say, Britishness, yep. uh, Carling's British, but then so is Rolls-Royce. But yep it's clearly a different sort of British, exactly. um, which I think is the point you're making, isn't it? Yeah. And, and you could apply that to any type of value, really. Yeah. Um, I suppose, really, all of our attitudes do work, or at least could be conceived of as working in that way, that we, we kind of categorise it and qualify it, mm. categorise it and qualify it. Yeah. Uh, and that's, I suppose, precisely what you're arguing from a, a sort of person perspective. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and that's all. that's what we're doing all the time. And, and, and each, each time we qualify, let's take Britishness, each time we qualify it, it's because we've come up against some other sort of Britishness or some other sort of luxury, which has said, oh, it's not that, it's not that. Peirce has actually got a, a concept for this, this kind of activity, which we don't need to get into, but he calls it secondness. He, he says, basically, you, you see things in terms of firstness, and then secondness comes along and says, no, it's not that, no, it's not that, it's not that, it's not that. And so you, your, your um, concept get further and further determined is, is how he explains it. And it's the process of determination which um, happens through these indexical effects because you start to realise, if you go back to our bottle of, of lager in, in Czechoslovakia, that bottle you might find in one bar, you won't find it in another bar. And so that second they're saying it's this, but it's not that. And that, that limiting yeah. process is, is going on all the time. That's really interesting because I've I've seen that used as a, a sort of workshop game when businesses are trying to come up with their brand value with or their their company values. Let's yep. say um, this, but not that. So you know we are professional, but not cold, and that sort of thing. So it it is quite helpful. Yeah, and I suppose that just shows you it's natural to our way of thinking about things. Like how do we articulate who we are? Yeah, well, we're like this, but not, yep. not like that. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, no, Perth actually says everything in the world, and he, he would include brands if, he, if he'd been around in the 20, 20th century, um, are the sum of their relationships with the world. Mm. So everything you're connected to defines exactly where you are in the world. Um, I, I've, again, when I talk to clients about this, it, I say it's almost like looking at your mobile phone. Only you, you're the only person in the world that's got the number of contacts, though, that exact number of contacts in the world. <laughs> and that totally identifies you as an individual. <laughs> um, yeah. And, and that's what brands are. They are totally defined by all their relationships with the world. That's fascinating. And you're now making me think of uh, Douglas Hofstadter, um, 
who wrote he wrote Gödel, Escher, yep. Escher, Bach, and um, I'm a Strange Loop. He has this really fascinating thought experiment that you know every cell in our body changes mm. roughly. I think it's every twenty years or something mm. like that. And yet we have a sense of of existing, like being a person, being mm. a consistent mm. entity. And in, in Gödel, Escher, Bach, he he suggests that. I think even the metaphor is that we're we're a standing wave. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. So we're we're just like a, uh, an organization of cells that exactly. that move through us. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. So it's, it's a bit like that. You know, well, you are, you know, and, and you're way. actually you're getting into some of the really deep philosophy of Peirce there because the, 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 some of the stuff I obviously haven't got into is he talks about form. It's the form that stays consistent. The, the actual kind of cell itself changes, but the form stays the same. Plato again philosophically. Um, asked the same question he talked about a ship and he said over the years the ship has different planks replaced and replaced and replaced and after 20 years there's not a single plank that's the same as when it was launched but it's still the same yeah. ship isn't it <laughs> yeah so yeah Argo or and then I think there's something about my my grandfather's axe yeah or have replaced the handle 12 yeah, times that's and right it's yeah, still the same three times yeah it's still the same axe yeah. yeah exactly so no identity what's interesting about identity is it's totally malleable but it remains constant. And that's what brands do. That's what great brands do. They, they change, but they're constant. Um, and that is, that is the trick for marketeers to pull off. But it is about ultimately then establishing what your identity is. And that's what we do, obviously, in, in so many workshops we do with clients when we're talking about what is the brand essence. But I, I certainly find it quite interesting. I don't know how many kind of workshops you've been in like this, Stephen, but you always find the client trying to reduce the essence down to one word. Um, and of course, one word will never be the answer because if a brand is ultimately an identity and a qualification, it needs at least to have two words in its brand essence. <laughs> I think that's a, it gets to the heart of something that I've, I've always struggled with with branding. Which is, um, there was a quite an influential book, probably in the late 90s, maybe early 2000s, called The 22 Immutable Laws of Branding. Mm, yeah, yeah. One of which is that a good brand owns a word in the mind yeah, of a customer. Yeah. Uh, so Volvo is safety and yeah. you know, BMW is, is engineering and dot, dot, dot. And that's an initially appealing idea. And from mm. a marketer's point of view, it's a really appealing idea. Yeah, yeah. That we will own this word and that will be, be known for. Yeah. But actually it doesn't work no. because Volvo aren't just no, safety. No. There are a whole load of other things. Exactly. Uh, yeah, totally. Exactly. Uh, so they're, they're a bit Swedish, but they're that kind of Swedish. Yeah, yeah. And they're, yeah, exactly. yeah. they're a car, but they're that kind of car and so on. Yeah, yeah. Now, I've, I've, I've ended up in workshops. Again, I won't mention brand names but one food company i worked for over the years once did a workshop and they ended up deciding that the brand was about taste well this was a food company it's like hold on a minute <laughs> oh, good <laughs> every other food company can say that too <laughs> um so yeah no you, you i think brand essences of their very nature need to be qualifications um they need to be an identity with a qualification of it and that's that starts the, the starts the process of saying exactly what you are and how you're different. Um, and obviously there could be lots of qualifications, but if you just get the main one sorted, that at least is distinctive. Your idea there of the matrix where you have kind of values down one side and qualifications yeah. going away from that, that's actually either as a literal tool, but just as a way of thinking about what, you know, what is our brand? Yeah. As it exists, as meaning is created in the minds of consumers, what's our propositional hierarchy? Yeah. What, what are our values? What are we known for? And what are the qualifications? Yeah. And I, I guess if you know that fairly well, then you can start to uh, address ways that you might 
change the order yeah, of the proposition. Exactly. Like a little bit. Yeah, and suppress some things, raise others. Yeah, exactly. And and what's fascinating when you do do this, you discover that in certain consumer groups, the propositional hierarchy is completely wrong. And then you can think, hold on a minute, how can we target this particular demographic or this particular ge- piece of geography to um, get them to think differently about it? I, I, I was lucky enough to research Iron Brew back in the 1990s before it was properly launched in England. And when you put Iron Brew in front of consumers in England, they just couldn't even begin to put, put it anywhere. It's like, what on earth is that? <laughs> is it a beer? <laughs> yeah. um, and they, they were struggling at that initial stage of identity. Another brand I worked on, again, years and years ago, um, when it wasn't in the UK, was um, Reese's Peanut Buttercups. Um, and again, put those in front of, of consumers in the early 1990s and people couldn't make head and the tail of what that thing was. Um, mm-hmm. So consumers are always starting off by trying to, uh, to identify what, what sort of thing something is and they classify it. And, and that's your starting point. And sometimes that can just be completely wrong. You, you get this in the, um, the drinks market. There are some, again, I won't mention brand names, you get some ciders that look too much like beers and some beers that look too much like ciders. And what they've done is, is get the identity wrong to begin with. And then even if you, you can qualify that identity to death, but if you've got the identity wrong in the first place, you're just in a bad place to start with. Um, and sometimes brands actually have to sit on the boundaries of identities as well. I got a brief, again, some time ago, on um, Orangina and um, the marketing team at the time wanted to work out where it should be positioned in the supermarket and of course some people wanted to put it in carbonates and some people wanted to put it in fruit juices but the the beauty of Orangina is it's neither a carbonate nor a fruit juice (laughs) it's a combination of the two Um, and that's why it's it's successful because it it absolutely sits on the boundary these these identities you 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 need to be careful about the words um, because sometimes the, the words don't match up with the identities that's that's one of the key learnings I've had over over the years um, that actually what the identity is, we might not have a word for it, but they can recognise it when they see it. And that's that's where, again, good qualitative research comes in and, and where quantitative research sometimes gets it wrong because quantitative research will always trust the word and, and yeah. run with what the word is. I mean, that, there is one more thing I wanted to, to mm. talk to you about, actually, and it's trying not to go too ranty here, but I feel like a lot of qualitative research isn't very good. Mm. And... and specifically the problem is that the people will go out and talk to customers and ask interesting open questions and get the customers to to say lots of interesting things and then they pick the most interesting of those interesting things and put them on a slide and that's the qualitative report yeah yeah. here's what customers think about your brand or whatever it is so it's just at that surface level of here are the words that the customers said yeah yeah and they don't do anything to interpret no 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 i i totally Um, agree but and i i I think one of the reasons I find your uh, sort of concept of qualitative semiotics appealing is because it gives an explicit sort of framework to go about doing some of that work that you need to do. Yeah. Um, Wendy Laws talks about these as mind frames, kind mm. of different yeah, yeah. ways you can approach doing that that work of interpretation. Yeah. And I think you, you need to do that. And then there's different models you can use, and it's useful to use a few. Yeah. But you've got to do something. You can't yeah. just report exactly. what customers yeah. said. Exactly. No, there is just too much reportage in qualitative research. And, and I think it has also not been helped by the growth of viewing facilities, which have encouraged clients to just listen to what they hear. And, and it's, 
it tends to kind of bypass the analysis and interpretation stage. Um, and clients often kind of walk out of the viewing facilities knowing they think they've heard the answer. And yeah, you need to have some interpretation in there because the words don't always match up with what people really think. But yeah, there's there's a whole conversation there. <laughs> yeah, yes, there really is. Yeah. About what's happened to qualitative research in the last 20 years, mm. but, um, but probably yeah. another discussion. Yeah, probably best, yeah. <laughs> Right. Well, thank you very much for your time. Well, it's been over you. an hour now, so I, I do appreciate that. Um, I find it really interesting, uh, and I'm sure our listeners will as well. Brilliant. Many, many thanks. Really enjoyed talking with you. Thanks, Chris. Cheers. Bye-bye. Well, that really was very interesting, Stephen, and I really liked the debate that you and Chris had. And you both kept coming to the same place, though perhaps from you know your, your different areas of expertise. Probably a few things I'd really just like us, us to talk about in terms of linking semiotics to the customer experience. And the first one that I thought was really interesting was... Um, storytelling which I know is one of your passions but uh, about the whole implicit and explicit messages and and how you get that across particularly as you know that has been such a growth in where we've seen the customer experience going in terms of bringing insight actions into an organization Um, what 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 did you think about the way Chris was talking about what you hijacked as storytelling (laughs) yeah I think it is it is I believe a big a big part of communication in general is is the sort of the stuff that isn't explicitly in a verbal message, but is is in all the stuff around that. So if you're talking per, person to person, it's in tone of voice and body language uh, and so forth. And if you're communicating through a piece of writing, it's in the typography you choose and the way it's laid out and the colours and and you know all of all of the sort of stuff that surrounds the actual text and the same thing if you're watching a tv advert you know there's the voiceover kind of explicit claim there's the text on the screen but then there's all the kind of implicit claims about the happy family that are using your cleaning product which is sort of implicitly saying if you use our cleaning product you'll have a happy family like this one that's a bit bit of a crude version of it but but there are implicit claims oh no i understand the message for me where that becomes really interesting is when you apply it to the customer experience you know the customer journey what are the the non-verbal, the non-explicit pieces of communication that are telling customers something that they're going to draw conclusions from? And the the easiest example I always go to is customers on hold at your call centre. Your call is very important to us, <laughs> but not important enough for us to answer well, it the, the, right sort of the, the explicit claim is your call is important to us. The implicit delivery on that is no, it isn't. And... The way I, I like to think about this is, you know, the most misquoted person in the history of psychology is Morabian, Alfred Morabian, who who's who gets quoted as saying, you know, most communication is nonverbal, and that's not at all what what his research showed, because the emotional content of communication is mostly nonverbal. But really, the point of his research was about congruence. So we like it when an, the explicit message and the implicit message are aligned and seem to be saying the same thing. And we dislike it when they seem to be saying different things. And I think that's a really important principle. So whether it's a TV advert you know, for Domestos or whether it's um, a piece of communication, a customer journey, or when, it, when I'm talking to someone face to face, if I'm getting congruent signals, then I'm more likely to trust them. I'm more likely to believe their explicit claims because it's backed up by the way they're behaving. So if you say, oh, Stephen, that's really interesting. And you're nodding and, you know, looking like you're paying attention to me, then I'll like that. 
if you say, yeah, that's, that's really interesting, Stephen, and you're looking over there and looking at your watch, then I get the impression that you probably don't really mean that. Yeah. So how do we utilise that in the world of customer experience, customer satisfaction? Presumably this is where a lot of like customer journey mappings really need to sort of get to a good degree of, I was going to say a good degree of detail, but perhaps view things from a different perspective is is to, to you know to make that congruence happen and that trust to, to be built. Absolutely, and I think it, it touches on so many things, this, but I think one thing it really links in with is Gerald Zeltman, who I mentioned in the discussion with, with Chris. He has this book, How Customers Think, and it kind of picks up and runs with this idea of the total customer experience. And what he points out is that there are loads and loads of subtle, often unconscious cues in a customer journey that affect their expectations and how they're feeling. And you know, the, the example I always give is the clock on a waiting room wall that, that sort of primes people to think they're going to be waiting for a long time. So removing the clock from the waiting room wall can improve their experience of waiting, it, which seems totally paradoxical and, and wrong, unless you come at it with that kind of understanding of what are the what communication is happening in that kind of implicit non-verbal channel yeah i think as well it's a while since um i heard it but um chris went right back to that sort of thing about you know first customer impressions first impressions um matter and even as you're talking there, thinking, and that first impression may actually be an un unintended one or an invisible one. I remember hearing a great guy talk. I'm not going to be able to remember his name. It was a professor at Warwick University who one of the things he actually got people to do was to walk into the offices as if they were a customer and say what you're seeing. Are you seeing a friendly door? Are you seeing a friendly person? What are the colours like? What feelings is this giving you as a welcome? And it sounds crass, but it was amazing <laughs> when you look at it with that different mindset rather than look at it, you know, with the internal mindset of, of, of you know, of that's the way, of that's the I've way I've always in. had this um, sort of pet theory, I guess, is the you know, nature of our job. We spend a lot of time travelling around, visiting different offices, whether it's to do a depth interview or whether to see a client or a prospect or whatever. And I've always felt that, you know, that sort of five, 10 minutes when you're in the waiting room, waiting for someone to come pick you up, you know what their company culture is like. Just from the way Absolutely. people walk through, whether they're nice to the receptionist or not nice to the receptionist, like there's all, there's all loads of little tiny clues that tell you this is a nice place to work or I'd actually rather not work here. And I think that's, just because of the mindset we have in that environment, particularly if we're going to do a depth interview or a client, you're trying to understand, I need to understand this person. So already on your radar is you're thinking, what can I learn? What can I learn? What can I learn? Oh, they've won some awards for customer experience and they're proud and they're showing them off. Oh, that was in 1974. Oh, you know, the mission statement is there or not there. What else is there? You know, and yeah, in terms of the culture, not just not just the receptionist, but the way other people sort of greet guests, and the eye contact, and 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 even the way it's sort of the way you're looked after, and and the way it looks, I think gives gives a whole feeling to you know to to the place. It it really is a very good way of understanding the, you know the culture, and yeah, that first that first customer impression, I think again is something that we probably don't think too much um, about, but, but has, has such a, an important impact. Really important, sorry, to jump, it's um, really important for customer journeys as well, I think, yeah. because I like, one of the things I like about the journey metaphor is it has 
the the notion of, of sort of flow baked into it. Like you start at one point and you finish further downstream. I quite like this idea of upstream and downstream. Yeah. One of the most fruitful ways to use a journey map is to say, well, if a problem sort of shows up here, let's go upstream to find the causes of that problem, or even if not the causes, that you know, a way we could have avoided it. And I think that touches very much on this as well, because what you often find is that customer expectations were set in a direction earlier on that, that either kind of inevitably leads to a bad place or, or if by tweaking those expectations could avoid that bad place. Um, and that is a very similar idea, really, isn't it? You're trying to change not necessarily what the customer is experiencing at this point, but how they're going to feel about the things they experience later on by setting them up to, to, to process yeah. them in a particular way. Yeah, absolutely. One of the other things I sort of thought a bit, and it'd just be worth um, elaborating on, was the um, sort of identify and qualify, as you know, or the identity and, and qualify as sort of two distinctly separate things and I thought in, in the conversation you had with Chris you, you both brought that out very well where I'd not really sort of I think I'd put them together as one <laughs> like most people probably do but but you did a good way of, you know of pulling them out you know and seeing the strength that each provides individually yeah I think that it's a useful way to start thinking actually isn't it and you can again you can imagine using this in research with customers yes yeah, so qualitative research you're trying to understand the customer experience coming at it from that that sort of you know the qualitative semiotic angle of you know what sort of a thing is this um and you know how does it how does it relate to other things that are sort of comparable so what, what what's distinguishing it from others i think that could be quite a useful way to approach the thing we always talk about, which is how customers make, you know, how, benchmark you with their experiences across all different sectors and industries and so on, approaches that quite nicely, yeah. doesn't it? So is this a bank or is it a someone you're talking to on the phone? In a way, that, that sort of idea of identity and qualification applies to that, doesn't it? Very much so, yeah. And, and again, sort of whichever way you come at this, it's linking back to the customer makes that judgment. <laughs> Who are they identifying with? You can't control who they're identifying with. You can't control who they're benchmarking you with, whether it's competitors or not competitors. Uh, and I, I think, you know, to link back to, to both parts of the the, the interview you, you, you did with Chris, I think that was, again, the big thing that came out is we can transmit, we can have ideas, we can do all that sort of thing. But at the end of the day, you have to talk to the customer to see how they've understood it, what meaning they're getting, how they're identifying, what what qualifying they are doing. And the point he, he makes throughout the whole thing is there is obviously such a richness of information there that's currently untapped, that is absolutely, is absolutely untapped. Got any plans to interview anyone else, Stephen? Uh, in, in principle, yes. I don't think I've got anyone lined up, but, um, but we definitely do need to do some more interviewing. I think it's, uh, well, for a start, it's always interesting to hear what experts in different fields have to say. And then I, I do really enjoy the process of trying to see how those ideas apply to the work that we do kind of more more specifically. Um, so, yeah, if, if you are someone who's an expert in something and, and you'd like to be interviewed, please get in touch. And if, you, if you've got some suggestions about who we should talk to, by all means, let us know and we'll, we'll see what we can do. So thanks very much for listening. Uh, if you're using iTunes, please subscribe, rate and review us. And if you want to get in touch, you can find us on Twitter at TLF Research or at TLFresearch.com. Thank you, everyone. Mm -hmm.